And if you've got a Bible, it would help you a lot, and me as well as the preacher, to work at it together. And uh, so if you do have that text open, I can't remember the page, I'm afraid, that um, Diane gave, but um, it's there in 1 Samuel chapter 20, and someone will shout out the page in the Bible again. 317. Thank you very much, page 317. And I say good morning to you all. Welcome. It's good to see you. And on this beautiful sunny day, and to add my welcome to Adam's welcome from earlier in the service, my, I'm Tom Parsons, I'm the vicar at Christ Church, and uh, greetings to you as well watching via the live stream. A brief prayer before we apply ourselves now together. May I speak in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and may we all hear in that same eternal and glorious name. Amen. Well, has anyone noticed that there's a leadership election going on at the moment um, for the leadership of the Conservative Party and the country? Well, one piece of political advice that I'm sure I don't need to tell any of the candidates is that success in politics depends on being loyal to the right people when it works for you. However, success in faith depends on being loyal to the right person, even when it costs you. And that's what we're going to see today. We're about to meet Jonathan, son of Saul. Jonathan is a hopeless politician, but he's a hero of faith. See, we're studying the first book of Samuel um, from the Old Testament um, histories um, as God's kingdom moves from chaos down the years of promise and then finally towards Jesus Christ, the ultimate king. And this is just one incident from that great history, but it teaches us so much. Saul, the first king, has been rejected. The Lord's taken his favor from Saul, and uh, he has anointed David as king instead. But Saul still sits on the throne, and Saul sees David as a terrible threat. And he is tormented with envy. Adam spoke about this a couple of weeks ago. Maybe you remember the song that so annoyed Saul. The ladies were singing. The great crowds of women were praising, singing, Saul has slain his thousands. And Saul was like, oh, this is great. And then they heard the next verse. And David slain his tens of thousands. And they were like, and Saul was like, Argh. envy starts to twist his character and he is determined to kill David. Have you ever struggled with envy? Maybe you, I'm sure you felt envy. I have. Um, let me tell you a story about a, um, a holy monk. He was a hermit of the desert and he was there and there was a demon trying to tempt him. And the demon tried everything. Sex, he tried money, he tried... Um, ease and laziness, nothing seemed to work. And so the junior demon went to the senior demon, his mentor, and said, why can't I make this holy man sin? And the senior mentor said, ah, oh, you're so naive. Watch me. I'll show you how it's done. And so the senior demon went down and he found the, um, he found the holy hermit, the monk, and he went up with a big cheerful beaming face before him and said, dear friend, he says, have you heard the good news? What's that? said the holy monk. And he said, your brother has just been promoted. He's been made Archbishop of Alexandria. And the monk crumpled 
Waves of self-pity and resentment and anger and envy came across him as he realized that was the job I wanted. It's envy. Incredibly powerful. Incredibly powerful. The American writer Gore Vidal said years ago, famously put it, every time my friend succeeds, something in me dies. It's painfully true. Well, here's the best piece of advice I ever heard on dealing with envy. He said, if you're, en if, you're, if you're envying someone, you're gripped with envy, praise them publicly. Say it publicly, and what you'll find is that the sting of envy is drawn, the poison is drawn, and it's replaced with, um, with joy. It's remarkable. Try it next time you're struggling with envy, if you're minded to fight it. Well, the poison of envy, it's already too far advanced for Saul. He's not going to recover. And in fact, in chapters 18 and 19, just before our story today, he has tried six times to assassinate David. And he's failed every time. And of course, every time he fails, his fear and his envy just grows. Now, there's a proverb in the Bible. It says, anger is cruel, but who can stand before jealousy? Very frightening. Very, very aggressive envy when it's in full flow. And so we, the thing is, we know we have hindsight. We know that it all worked out for David and that he became king. But at the time, um, David must have felt like an antelope before a lion. Terrifying. And so he says, look at chapter 20 now, verse 3. David says, as surely as the Lord lives, there is only a step between me and death. Now, in his moment of despair, David turns to his friend, Jonathan. Jonathan, who is Saul's eldest son. Right, I'm going to guide us through this story from here on in now with four scenes to take us through the chapter. Here's the first scene. That's the first part of the chapter. Scene one, an unlikely refuge. That's what I call it, an unlikely refuge. David is an outlaw. Robin Hood was an outlaw as well. Now, suppose the Prince of Thieves, Robin Hood, um, was in a, the tightest fix, and can you imagine the last person he would go to to seek refuge in would be the son of the Sheriff of Nottingham? It would be madness. Well, yet David, who's in trouble, who does he seek out? He seeks out the son of the very man who's trying to kill him. More than that, if you think about it, Jonathan is the heir to the throne. He is the firstborn son of Saul. He is the heir to the throne. How can David, the outlawed traitor, go to Jonathan, the heir to the throne, to seek refuge? Jonathan and David are natural political enemies. We would expect this meeting to be a place of danger. But in fact, it's David's unlikely refuge. In God's kingdom, you see, everything is different. Well, Jonathan, he says to David, he says, Jonathan, David, he says, my dad doesn't want to kill you. David says, yes, he really does. He really does. And you need to understand that he does, he will kill me. And so they work out a test to, uh, to try out Saul's feelings. And the test is, is quite clever. Basically, there's a two-day feast about to begin, and David is due to attend, but he's going to stay away. 
question is, what will Saul say when he sees that David's seat is empty? Well, David says to Jonathan, he says, look, here's what you're to say. When, if Saul asks, where's David? Say this, verse 6, it's there in verse 6. He says, say, uh, if your father misses me at all, tell him, David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, my hometown, because an animal sacrifice is being made there for the whole clan. It's quite a clever test because if, just suppose Saul heard that excuse and said, oh, that's okay then, no problem, took it at face value, it would confirm that he's actually quite relaxed about David. But if Saul is still gripped with envy and fear, then the idea that David is at home among his own clan and has, 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 will provoke him, will provoke his envy and his fear. Well, this is actually quite a dangerous mission for Jonathan um, because, of course, he, he must realize that if Saul reacts badly, then Jonathan, he's, Jonathan's going to be the one in the firing line, which is, in fact, what happens. So we ask the question, what gave David, what gave this outlaw the nerve to ask Jonathan, the crown prince, to risk so much for him? And why is Jonathan willing to do this for David? Now, the answer to that question actually leads us to the very heart and the depth of this story. Just listen. Look at verse 8. This is a very important verse in the, in the narrative. So verse 8. David, this is, this, is, this is what David says in verse 8. He says, as for you, Jonathan, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you. Before the Lord. A covenant. That is a carefully, uh, intentionally set out agreement and promise. David and Jonathan have sworn a covenant with one another. They've promised before God to be loyal to one another, come what may. Now, we don't know why they'd done that. We don't know why they'd done that. They had formally, this formally sworn friendship with one another, it's actually, it's pretty, it's almost unique in the Bible. And it's not something that we are told or even recommended to do among ourselves. What we do know for sure is that God is the great covenant maker. And he is the great covenant keeper. Maybe David and Jonathan want to imitate him. See, God wants us to know where we stand with him. He wants every person to know where we stand with him. And that's why he makes covenants with his people. He makes clearly stated promises. He makes clearly expressed commitments to show to his people hesed. You're looking at me thinking, what's that? It's a Hebrew word. Hesed. If you say it in Hebrew, I can't quite say it, but you say sort of hesed. Like that. What is this hesed? Well, it's a Hebrew word that's worth knowing. Alleluia is the other one. <laughs> hesed. It, God swears to treat us with hesed. No one English word quite does it justice. 500 years ago, when William Tyndale, the great translator of the English Bible, when he translated the Bible, he actually joined together two English words to capture it. He created a new word. Lord, your loving kindness. He rolled them together, loving kindness, to try and capture this Hebrew word, hesed, 
which, but, but actually loving kindness, even that doesn't really gather together all the, all the realities that are involved in, in the idea. Hesed expresses loyalty as well, and persistence, and consistency, and faithfulness, and goodness, and graciousness. It is all packed in. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His hesed endures forever. So we say love, his love endures forever. But that's the word, hesed. And, and this is how God has promised, it, promised to treat those who are in covenant with him. Now, he made various covenants throughout the Bible. But underpinning all of these covenants is the great covenant that Jesus calls the new covenant in my blood. Because that's what it cost to establish this glorious agreement where God treats us with this loving kindness, this hesed. It took the blood of God the Son as man shed in the place of the guilty. So that all who repent and believe in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, they become covenant partners with the Lord and receive his hesed, his loving kindness, his unchanging faithfulness, favor and grace. So David goes to Jonathan on the strength of this covenant that they have formed together. And, he, they, and, and, and they, they pledge to one another this hesed, this kindness, this love. It's such an unlikely refuge, politically speaking. It's sheer political madness. But in the kingdom of God, everything is different. Well... The, the, the issue is now, though, how are the two friends going to communicate the result of the test? Well, they go out into the field to work out a plan, and that leads us to our second heading, which is this. Scene two, an unexpected request. An unlikely refuge, an unexpected request. So before they get down to their planning, a conversation takes, the, the conversation takes a very unexpected turn. Jonathan makes a request of David that seems completely out of place. Verses 14 to 16, I'm going to read that. I'm going to read all three verses, verses 14 and 16. This is what Jonathan says to David. It's not what you expect. Jonathan says, David, show me unfailing hesed, unfailing kindness, that word again, like that of the Lord, as long as I live so that I may not be killed, and, and do not ever cut off your kindness, there it is again, from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. Now that is really odd. Why? Because Jonathan is in the position of power. So it's obvious why David asked Jonathan for kindness but now it's Jonathan asking David for kindness for this godlike covenant love he asks as if his life depends on it why well because Jonathan believes the Lord Jonathan believes and knows that the Lord has anointed David to be the next king and so Jonathan knows that one day when David becomes king, he, Jonathan, and Jonathan's family will be an unwanted hangover from the old regime. They'll be the Romanovs after the Russian Revolution. They'll be the, you get it, you get the point. They'll be the old regime. They'll be ripe for purge. 
That's how it, that's how it worked in the kingdoms of the old days. It doesn't work like that in the kingdom of God. But that's the assumption in the world, is that Jonathan's family will be ripe for purge. So in other words, Jonathan is acting there and then on the basis of a future that, he, that God has promised. And that part, that's part of what makes him a hero of faith. But there's another reason as well. The other reason he's a hero is because he denies himself. He denies himself to honour God's word and God's kingdom and God's king. Because who is the heir to Saul's throne? It's Jonathan. Jonathan should be the next king. In the natural course of political events. And yet he bows to God's will. And says, David, you will reign. Can you think of Prince Charles? From the moment Prince Charles could remember, everybody, including himself, you're going to be king. You're going to be king. You're going to be king. How much has that shaped his identity? Hugely so. Well, Jonathan, well, Jonathan was like that too. This was his destiny. And not only that, Jonathan's personality is actually better fitted to be king than Saul's, interestingly. But Jonathan lays all of that aside. He lays it all aside. If, if you've ever had to let go of some ambition or some cherished desire out of obedience to Christ, you understand Jonathan. Think of Jonathan. Think of him alongside um, those I don't know, who've, who've left behind a, 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 a career that the world applauds out of obedience to Christ's call. That's like Jonathan. Or a, 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 a believer who stays single because they won't marry a non-believer. That's like Jonathan. Or who lives far below their income level so that they can give lavishly to God's kingdom. That Think of Jonathan. It's Jonathan. There was a great missionary, Jim Elliot, who died. Many of you might have read his story. He died at the age of 25. He was martyred by the, um, the uh, tribes people in Ecuador who he was trying to reach with the gospel. He said this, again, some of you know the quote very well. He says, they are no fools who give what they cannot keep to gain what they cannot lose. Well, Jonathan, that was Jonathan. He gave it away. I'm giving it away. Now it's easy to see with hindsight that Jonathan was right. It was easy to see it. But at that moment, as Jonathan was giving up his kingdom to David, by, it, it, it was a, a thing of faith. At that moment, it cost him to embrace J David, who's actually depriving Jonathan of his own destiny. Extraordinary. So a plan is made for communicating the results. Jonathan's going to shoot some arrows, and if the arrow is shot um, alongside David's hiding place, that means everything is well. If the arrow is shot beyond David's hiding place, that spells bad news. So, time to put the plan into action. It's time for scene three, an, an unlikely refuge, an unexpected request. Third, an explosion of anger. So, the feast begins. David's seat's empty. Day one, Saul says nothing. Day two... Saul asks, verse 27, he says, why hasn't the son of Jesse, that's David, why hasn't he come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Well, Jonathan gives the agreed response. And 
bang, Saul explodes. And the bile spews all over Jonathan. And so, uh, so, first of all, devastating insults fly. And then, look at verse 31, as Saul's murderous heart is exposed. Verse 31, Saul screams at Jonathan. He says, as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, that is David, as long as David lives, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now bring him to me, for he must die. Now, Saul is right. Jonathan himself knows it. As long as David lives, Jonathan will never reign. But there's a vast difference between father and son. You see, Saul talks about Jonathan and Jonathan's kingdom. But Jonathan doesn't want Jonathan's kingdom. He wants God's kingdom. Ruled by God's king. Denying self, taking up cross, as Jesus puts it. Take up, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. We've got to a stage in Western culture where self-denial is considered to be basically um, dysfunction. Basically, that is psychologically harmful. Any kind of self-denial is only just, it is actually just deforming your personality and crushing and deforming you. Well, that, that's, that, that is not a, a biblical mindset at all. See, Jonathan knows that it's more important to obey God than it is to achieve your goals. He knows it matters more to be faithful than to fulfill his potential. He knows it. He knows that you find life when you lose it. It sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? We lay down our lives, we find our lives. So Saul that tries to squash God's plans to fulfill his own ambitions. Jonathan squashes his own ambitions in order to give God's plan free reign. And the only thanks he gets is a spear hurled at him by his demented father. He is chosen. He, 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 and and, um, and uh, so he's chosen to, to go God's way, even at this great cost to himself. Um, so in that moment, he knows the truth. Saul will kill David. So he goes out to the field, he takes his bow and arrow, and he shoots the bow beyond David to communicate that all is not well. So scene one, an unlikely refuge. Scene two, an unexpected request. Scene three, an explosion of anger. Scene four, a tearful parting. See, David and Jonathan actually do get an opportunity, an unexpected opportunity to say goodbye. It's so emotional, it's heartbreaking. Jonathan utters, he says these extraordinary words, verse 42 to 43, just, just look there. Jonathan said to, to David, he said, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship to each other in the name of the Lord. The Lord is witness between you and me, between your descendants and my descendants forever. Go in peace? How can there be peace for David now? Because nothing will break the covenant. David can always rest assured that Jonathan loves him. And that one day Jonathan will hand the crown willingly to him. And for his part, Jonathan knows that even when David's kingdom rules, that his family will be safe. Do you know the beautiful story of how David fulfilled that promise to Jonathan's family? It's one of the most moving stories in the Bible. It's told in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Uh, David deliberately, because Jonathan gets killed in battle, 
and uh, there's only one descendant left. He's a, he's a crippled little boy. His name is an interesting one to pronounce, Mephibosheth. Make sure you've got your teeth well glued in before you try it. Mephibosheth. And, Mephibosheth, and David seeks out Mephibosheth and he invites him to join his royal table. And he cares for him and he blesses him all the days of his life for the sake of Jonathan to honour this covenant. An unlikely refuge, an unexpected request, an explosion of anger, a tearful parting. What's this passage saying to us? It, well, it's already said a lot. I'm sure it has. It encourages us to develop deep friendships. You know, the good Christian friends that you have, um, treasure them and stick with them for life. It, it reminds us to honour our covenant promises. I mean, marriage, is, is that, that's, that's really the, the sort of the covenant relationship um, in, in the strict sense of covenant. Um, and uh, so this is a special, you know, just reminder for those of us who are, are married to, uh, to keep these, 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 um, th these promises by the power of God. And this sets out the case for an unsung hero. Jonathan is extraordinary. I hope, I hope you've seen that this morning. He's amazing. But most importantly of all, Jonathan shows us how to relate to the royal dynasty of David. All of us must deal with the dynasty of David. All of us must deal with the house of David. Not the house of Windsor or the house of Romanoff or the house of Bourbon or Orléans or Genghis Khan or any of the other kings of this world who have had their royal houses. No, they will, they'll all disappear into the dust one day. But the royal house of David holds sway over history and eternity because God promised that one of David's descendants would inherit the throne of the whole universe. One particular man. Jesus is that man. Born in Bethlehem, the city of David, the descendant of David, this one person now rules the whole of history and everybody will give an account to Jesus, the son of David. Now, the wonderful thing is that the son of David longs for us all to enter into a covenant of friendship with him. After all, he shed his blood, didn't he? He shed his blood so that we can come into him, in, into his family, and receive this hesed, this unfailing kindness and this grace. No matter what lies in the past, no matter what darkness or ugliness lies in our, the, the, the cupboards of the hidden places of our lives, he says, you can come. Come on, let's be friends. Do you know what he said? Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And that's what he did to call us and draw us into friendship with himself. Anybody, all of us, can come, must come to him and to take his hand and receive him. In other words, we need to do a Jonathan. We need to do a Jonathan. We need to, we need to meet David, the son of David's covenant promises with our faith. He offers us these promises and we receive them in faith and say, yes, we need, and that means, of course, that there is, a, there is an edge to that as well because it means accepting his rule, even at the expense of all the very things that charm us most to be sacrificed to his blood. That's the, the thing, isn't it? We lay upon the altar the dearest and the best for him. 
That's a, it means change. It means, it means laying aside um, the uh, uh, agendas. Saul wouldn't do that. You know, ego is the enemy here. Ego is always the enemy. Um, you see, Saul thinks it's, my, it's Saul's agenda, and he won't let it go. And in the end, it destroys him. Jonathan will let go his own agenda. He will let his own ego drop from his hands as he takes hold of the son of David and trusts in him. As a minister in the Church of England, um, when I took up this post here, um, and when I was ordained, I, um, I was, I, I'm required to swear an oath of allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth and her lawful successors, or all Church of England ministers do. I'm sure Her Majesty finds it reassuring um, that I have sworn such an oath, and uh, that's all right take that seriously and so I should but there's an even greater allegiance that we are being called towards here I invite us to pledge or confirm now our unconditionally allegiance to the son of David to Jesus to find our refuge and our peace in him in his blood in the blood of our friend there's a proverb that says um, it says, we, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That's Jesus. He says, I'll come to you and I'll meet you, but you must meet me. And so let's now, in the quiet, receive him and his love and ask him, uh, uh, give to him our lives. Maybe that means laying down our own agenda, our own ego, and saying, no, Lord Jesus, I want to be yours Father God, we thank you for this wonderful story. We thank you for Jonathan and all that he shows us of what it really means to live. And we pray, Heavenly Father, now that you will give us by the Holy Spirit the power to reach out and hold Christ in allegiance to him, in love for him, in friendship with him now and forever. May this be in our depths of our hearts right now, all of us, in Jesus' name. Amen.